reigning in grace. For the grace of God has appeared, we read earlier, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This morning, we want to look at two things from, there's two subsections there, and we see that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, and the grace of God trains us in order that we may be saved, and also from worldly passions. Two weeks ago, we looked at verse 11, and verse 14 of chapter 2. And I mentioned that this was going to be a short series of the grace of God to us. And we looked at two key points relating to the appearance of the grace of God. And firstly, that the, the purpose of the grace of God. So verse 11 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is, that the grace of God is the only way we can be saved. If the grace of God was not revealed, then no one, none of us, would be saved. That would not be an indictment on God's part, but in fact, it would be his righteous justice for everyone to face the wrath of God. Yet God, being rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, saw it fit to save a people for his own possession. The Bible says you are zealous for good works. That's verse 14. So it is the work of God's grace, namely his free gift of eternal love, his eternal loving kindness and favour to unworthy people. As further shown by his blessings, the spiritual blessings that he bestows on us, those eternal blessings in Christ. The second point we looked at and touched on was the grace of God personified. The grace of God was not revealed in an abstract manner, but rather through a person, our Lord and Saviour, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we saw this in verse 14. He gave himself, that is, Jesus went freely to the cross for sinners to redeem us, to pay that price, to pay the ransom, to pay for the punishment for our sins. And why? To purify sinners for himself. To make us his own possession so that we can do what? We can do good works for his kingdom and his glory. But today we want to continue walking through this passage that talks to us about grace. It's a wonderful passage that helps us to see how our faith began, how it progresses and what we can look forward to, what is to come. So having looked at how it began, today our focus is how the grace of God impacts now in this present age. How does it impact us now in this present age? And there's just one point in your outline with two subsections. The the main focus is that the grace of God trains us to deny ourselves, to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions. Let's read again verse 12. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Raise your hand up if you have a driving license. Even if it's a provisional license. Okay, so there's quite a few of us. Keep them raised if, you're, if, if you drove here today or you're able to drive. Okay, cool. How do you normally turn your wheel when you're, you're kind of maneuvering? Do you stick to the rules? Do you kind of feed the wheel through your hands or do you kind of do this? <laughs> I wonder which one you do. I think most people start to do this, right? Probably after a week after you pass, right? The thing is, we tend to follow the textbook for when we have a test, don't we? We know we've got a test coming up, so our, our teachers, our driving instructors tell us to feed the wheel through. But it seems that afterwards, we just develop this habit of like, let's do what I want to do, right? And like whichever way works, you know, some people use their left hand, right hand, doing all types of things. And that's your driving skills. But I wonder how it is for you when you think about God's grace, when you've come to the Lord and you've renounced your sins. Do you go back to that very, those old habits? Do you visit them again? Training in grace not only leads us to renounce our former ways, but it helps us to continue to live as taught. We must never forget that. That what we are taught by grace, that grace also teaches us to continue to progress. But that's the living aspect. We'll look at that this, this morning. The grace of God trains us to deny ourselves. I want you to think of the last time you went to the gym or you played tennis. Some of us went to play tennis last week. We were inspired by Wimbledon. Or the last time you exercised or cycled or did some form of activity. Maybe not walking, all right? But you may be prepared for some sort of competition. How was it when you turned up cold turkey? How did you feel without no training? See, there is a difference in your performance when you have done the preparation and practiced working on your skills. See, in an ideal world, practice over a period of time improves our performance. But there's another level I want us to consider today. Imagine you have a personal trainer or a coach who is by your side drilling you, pouring themselves out for you, saying, this is how you do it. Every day, directing you and instructing you, pointing out your strengths and your weaknesses, helping you to develop your skills and able to teach and guide you. It's a different type of training. See, there are different types of training, but being trained by someone else who has the ability to teach, has walked the journey before, is a huge advantage. Likewise, godly training which originates from God, continues to help us, continues to grace us, pours out grace upon grace. The grace of God is the trainer. The subject is us, the believer. 
See, having explained the grace of God, Paul in verse 12 is saying that the grace of God is training all true believers to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God is the incarnate God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who trains his redeemed people that are his possession. And so in verse 11, we see that Jesus Christ is our great Saviour, but in verse 12, he's our ultimate teacher, our ultimate trainer. Verse 11 is a one-time event, a finished work of what Jesus has done on the cross. In his appearing, he brought salvation, justification, made us right with God. But verse 12 here is teaching us that we need training. We need to continue to be trained. We forget that we cannot defeat sin in our lives by willpower, don't we? There's no chance of that. We cannot defeat sin in our lives by our own strength. It is impossible. We have good days. But the Bible says even the young men do grow faint and weary, the Bible says. We also cannot defeat our sins by, our, by being passive or indifferent or ignorant. You only receive heavy blows and buffeted by the enemy. We need to be trained not on our own accord, but by the grace of God. It is the truth of Jesus that sets us free, not our feeble attempts to refrain from sin. How does the believer be trained? How does he train? How does Jesus train the believer? It is important to know that the training here is the sense of teaching, discipline, discipline, even Chastising to educate one to conform to divine truth, namely sound doctrine. It includes communication, instruction, teaching, correction, discipline, like I said earlier, reproof, discipleship. See, training most times involves an element of suffering. Just as top, top athletes put their bodies through intense and sometimes excruciating training, Spiritual training involves death to self. The Lord's discipline has both positive and negative aspects, one could say. There are positive aspects which involves him communicating to us, instruction, direction and teaching us. But there's also negative aspects where there's correction, there's needed discipline and reproof when we stray away from his purposes and his standard. Nevertheless, it is always reserved for those who are in Christ. Discipline, correction, communication, direction and guidance reserved for those who are in Christ and following Christ. So whilst 11, verse 11, Paul teaches us that salvation is offered for all people. Here in verse 12, it reveals that God only trains those who are truly is. We cannot begin to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives if we're not daily crucifying the flesh and refraining from worldly enticements. We need the grace of God to train us to deny self. Remember how chapter 2 started in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The primary way in which every Christian is trained is through sound doctrine, sound instruction. We cannot outgrow the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
When we forsake sound doctrine, we are not equipped to fight the fight of faith. We don't enter into the boxing ring without our boxing gloves. Likewise, we, are, we desperately need the grace of God in order to fight self. We must be armed with the gospel. Have you enrolled in God's school of grace where the Lord teaches? What is the grace of God What does it train us to do? How does Jesus train us to deny ourselves? Well, God's grace, God's school of grace does two things in this present age that we live in. Number one, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Those are carnal inclinations. Secondly, the grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions. Those enticements from outside, from the world. So firstly, the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness. How? To deny, to say no, a firm refusal of sin. Must first define what ungodliness is. What is ungodliness? A.W. Pink says this, ungodliness is failing to give God his due place in our hearts and our lives. Ungodliness is failing to give God his due place in our lives, in our hearts and our lives. Essentially, it's living without regard for God. Praylessness, not talking to God, not communicating with God, our creator, is disregarding God. Planning for tomorrow with regard for God, as James talks about, is ungodliness. This may include our work opportunities, future marriage, people we want to be married to in the future. When we don't bring God into the situation, it's a disregard for him as God. It's ungodliness. Not reading our Bibles is ungodliness. When we don't read our Bible, especially with the view to know God, we have no regard for his word for his truth, how he has revealed himself to us and instructs us in godliness. We can go on further. Not studying the word is ungodliness. Sometimes we read the word just for breath, just for the, like, to, to get a handle of things, but we don't study. Take time to comb through God's word. If we read it only for devotion and breath, attaining knowledge only, do not study God's word to be an approved worker. Some godliness also. When we know what God's word says and we refuse to obey it, that too is ungodliness. You can read and study it, but if you're not obeying God's word, that is ungodliness. We often assume that the emphasis on the grace of God leads to further sinning and we as a family were told when we were leaving our previous church that be careful those doctrines of grace they only lead to more sin to all sorts of sin don't leave their warning was loving there was some truth to it particularly to being careful yet contrary to what sometimes is assumed those who truly understand the grace of god should only be growing in denying 
ungodliness. Refraining and renouncing ungodliness. Letting the grace of God shape our lives. And this will surely cause us to then stand in humility, in awe, when we know what the grace of God has done for us. There's no, I want to do works in order to be, it's here I am, woe is me, as we read in Micah. There is a repentant heart, standing in awe and surrender to the supreme God of the ages, the supreme God of this present age, the supreme God of the age to come, the eternal God. And so we look at our second sub-point. The grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions. The grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions. Paul says in verse 11 to 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What are these worldly passions? The world system. Anything that opposes God, that opposes who God is, his plan, his purposes, what he has ordained, the world system. Whilst ungodliness is disregard for God, worldly passions are things which oppose God. The very things that try to oppose God. How? I don't know. So we should be familiar with 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So enjoying worldly passions is reveling in the things of the world. Number one, the desires of the flesh. These are the lust of the flesh, carnal desires. The flesh wants to gratify Gratify its longings and evil appetites, which can never be satisfied. Why? Because it's selfish. Self is selfish. Just wants, wants what it wants, nothing else. It only causes destruction. You can never satisfy the flesh because you're, you were never made, made to find satisfaction in yourself alone. You were never made, you and I were never made to find satisfaction in ourselves other than the true and living God, the one who made us. See, desires don't always start off sinful. For example, you could be hungry and you have every intention, right, to just, you know, you start the day well, but you grow hungry because you haven't eaten, and all of a sudden you are now arguing people because you're irritated. You're hangry, as they say. Food does that to us. The desire for food is the right response to hunger. But like Esau, we saw he gave away his birthright, even in his hunger. Hunger can make you act a fool. It can make us act up. It can make people steal. It can make people envy. Number two. The desires of the eyes. 
These are the, the, lust, the lust of the eyes. Whatever we place more value in, whatever we, have, we place eye service to more than God, we seek more than God. That's the desires of the eyes. These are desires to find more beauty, to find more value in worldly things other than our maker. Is there anything that you desire more than God today? Things that you wake up thinking about more than God. Number three, the pride of life. These are anything of of this world that makes us prideful, insolent, arrogant and boastful. This is the desire to be God himself. That is to be God over our own lives, God over others. A desire to rule by exalting ourselves above God's power and wisdom. We're not often content to live and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We want to live as God himself. The reality is nothing is outside the control of the Almighty and all-knowing God. And so from the Garden of Eden, humanity has faced these temptations. Adam and Eve fell into Satan's worldly trap because of these desires, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And so to this day, we are tempted in these three specific areas. Desires of the flesh, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like these, the Bible says. Things like these. The desires of the eyes, we constantly want and desire shiny things, new things. We have clothes in the cupboards, but we want more. We want more. Prime sales comes up. Two days. And I, I was thinking to myself, what should I get? I didn't need anything. But the sale is out. It's time to say 50%. <laughs> we want more. The pride of life. The very sin that caused Satan to come under the judgment of God. Pride we know comes with full fall. God brings down the proud and lifts the humble, the Bible says. Pride is the desire to displace God as God. We try to displace God for who he is. When we desire to lord it over others, when we refuse to apologise when we are wrong, it is what happens when we are puffed up with knowledge. Pride ruins relationships in our churches, in families, on a national level. We see Boris and those involved in the party gates refusing to apologise, dishing out commands, yet they were living contrary. That's pride. There is much training, brothers and sisters. The number of years we have been born again is not a measure of the training that we've received. Summer is here and for some of us it's time to hit the gym. 
Some people enjoy going to the gym. I, I'm not that type of person, personally. But winter is coming when it will not be so easy to maintain that gym attendance. Why? It's not so easy when it's cold out there. The stamina, the dedication is not the same. Comfort eating sets in. Hot meals, hot chocolate, and the like. Christians, we must continue to be trained by the grace of God in every season. In every season. It is is the hallmark of a Christian to say, like John, John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by grace and grace alone. Is that your testimony this morning? Is that your prayer this morning? That I'm not where I want to be. I've still got a long way to go. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. The grace of God is keeping me. The grace of God is holding me fast. Is that your prayer and your testimony this morning? That's our sinful self. When we face these temptations, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. But see how the better Adam, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, responded to Satan when he faced temptation himself. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, we read in Matthew 4, 3 to 11, these three things again, the desires of the flesh. Jesus was presented with the opportunity to show forth his power and turn the stones lying there on the way into bread. Whilst he had the power to do this, he chose God's will, which required Jesus to depend on the Holy Spirit who led him, as we know, into the wilderness. So so Jesus responds to the devil with, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds with those, those words. To the desires of the eyes. Again, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the top of the temple and asked him to throw yourself down. Would he not cause you to be saved? Be arrogant. You know the angels will come to help you. You won't be hurt. Jesus responds in verse 7. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the pride of life. Again, the devil took him to the peak of the huge mountain and showed Jesus the array, the beauty of the city, the kingdoms and the glory. You want this, you asked, you asked him. You should have this. All these I will give to you if you fall down, bow down and worship me. That is the devil saying You don't need to suffer. Why do you need to suffer on the cross? Forget those people. You can avoid that. You have power, the title, the glory already. 
Just worship me. Jesus did not entertain such foolishness. He brought out the sword of the Spirit again and said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, brothers and sisters, we overcome ungodliness and worldly passions by Jesus making purification for our sins. His continual cleansing is by his word. Ephesians 5 says, and verse 14 says, it, that, that's what it reminds us of, that he's cleansing, that we stand in Christ, that he washes us with his word. So let's read verse 14 of Titus again. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. See, we, re- we receive this sanctifying grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. How? I want to suggest four things that Paul gives us as we close this morning. Four S's. Saved. Seek. Suffer. Say no. Saved. Seek, suffer, say no. Number one, know and rejoice in your identity. Know and rejoice in your identity in Jesus Christ. Why? You have been saved. You have been washed. You have been cleansed. He has made you his very own possession. Your position is that you're in God's family. You're not of this world. But you're in his very family. He has embraced you and adopted you in. It's amazing. I was watching the documentary, or not documentary, but interview with, with Dele Ali, who was, he was suffering because of things that happened in, the, in his past. He was then taken in because his parents kind of, they were facing their own turmoil and they, they left him, right? But he was taken into this lovely family. Yet, in that loving family, he was still battling with all the things that had gone on in his past. The thing about coming into God's family is, he not only saves us, he redeems us. He gives us a new life in him. We don't need to face those past sins anymore by ourselves. But we stand in Christ. We stand in his hope and rejoice in our identities is in Christ. Dele Ali, it was so difficult for him to embrace this new family even though they loved him. God shows us so much love that he takes us in and he treats us as his son and daughters in Christ. As we read earlier, Micah, our sins are just dropped into the bottom bottomless pit Paul just he remembers them no more that's the salvation that we have in the Lord the question is are you in Christ are you in Christ our text this morning is telling telling us that those who are those who the grace of God has has been revealed to will be continue will continue to be trained by grace those who the grace of God has been revealed to will continue to be trained 
by grace. I was reminded by my parents as a young boy to remember the son of who you are. It's a common Nigerian um, proverb which translates that wherever you go, remember whose child you are. Don't behave like other children. Behave how this standard is in this home, what we hold to. So when you go to uni, when you go to be with your friends, don't act up. Act with the same standard that you have in this home. What standards do we live by? Do we live by the standard that we are saved? Or do we live by the standards of the world? That's the image we have in verse 12. When you are assured of your identity in God's kingdom and that Jesus has saved you from ultimate rebellion and that the eternal consequence, you only grow in depending more and more on God. When we know what we've been saved from, it should only make us to depend on him more and more. So as you grow to know this wonderful saviour, we grow to lean on him. Not on our own strength or understanding, but leaning on him, trusting in him, waiting on him, coming to him, surrendering our weaknesses because we have been saved. Secondly, we must continue to seek the grace of God. We must have our eyes fixed on Christ. When we look to anything else in this world, we not only do God as this justice that uh, this is the great almighty God. Why would you look at anything else? He is the most beautiful thing. He has saved us. The wonder of salvation. That I, a sinner, could be saved by the loving God. That he could show his grace should only make us to seek him the more. God's word cleanses us. We must look into God's word. It cleanses our hearts and minds. Paul David Tripp once said, if you constantly look into the mirror of God's word, you will constantly confess your need for God's grace. That's how it is. It shouldn't make us to do anything else. As we look into his word, we see that we are falling short all the time. But it makes us people that confess our sins more and more. We confess to the Lord. We confess to one another and say, this is my heart. This is, this is not right. This is not in, in accordance to God's word. Help me, brother and sister. Pray for me. But we don't confess just for the sake of confessing. Sometimes we do that. We confess just so that we know that oh, someone else has heard my confession. And now that's a weight lifted off my shoulder. No, we confess daily in true repentance to Jesus so that we may receive help, so that we may receive help in time of need, grace and help in time of temptation. That's what we need for change. Thirdly, we must suffer the loss. We must suffer the loss of pleasure, the loss of wealth, the loss of fame, the loss 
of sometimes losing face to others. When we don't follow worldly passions, when we don't do as our colleagues and friends are doing, we lose face sometimes. Why are you not joining us in this? You're standing over there. Come here. When you take that stance, that's, that's, not, that's not what I've been called to. I've been saved from that. Sometimes we lose face. The Bible says, but count it all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God. That's our reasonable and perfect worship to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus has sacrificed his life for us. Why would we not lay down our lives for him? Don't think too much of the worldly pleasures you will miss out on. Don't think too much of those sins. Suffer the loss that you may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. As dung, he says. That's the original word. That's it's dung. Those worldly ways, worldly passions on God as dung. It's lost in order that I may gain Christ. We say, and finally, we say no to sin. We say no to sin. Every time we face those temptations, those temptations to respond to others as they 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 they, they, they curse me. Let me let me give them something. We say no. Every time we're faced with those pictures on the internet, we say no. We stand firm. We starve the flesh of what it wants. But then we feed our spirit. We feed our spirit and we walk in the spirit. How do we walk in the spirit? We pray for the Lord to give us the thirst and hunger for righteousness that we would walk in the ways of God, that we would walk hand in hand. We say no to sin as a community. We have brothers and sisters in Christ praying for us. We are accountable to one another. And so we walk this journey together, not on our own accord, but with each other in Christ. See, pray for a thirst and hunger for righteousness. Only then will we be satisfied. It is a battle to say no to sin. We know it. You and I know it. You only have to be a Christian one day to know the struggle to say no to sin. But in John 14, Jesus promises his disciples that he will send a helper. He will send a helper, his own spirit, to teach us the Christ teachings. And he helps us to fight this fight against sin. Let's walk in the Spirit. Let's trust in the Lord. Let's trust in the Holy Spirit to help us as we close. The problem we have is that we treat being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions sometimes as our gym membership. There are four types of gym memberships, I think. Number one, those who have gym memberships but don't really understand the need and so they don't go. 
Secondly, those who attend the gym in preparation for holiday or wedding or date. But it's not really part of their lifestyle, right? Thirdly, those who have a membership, but they're too busy. Life just takes over. They're stressed with other things. Why did I even sign up to this membership in the first place? I wasn't going to do it. Other things become more important. But fourthly, those who have a gym membership, those who maybe go on YouTube and say, what else can I do to get to this position? Or they have a personal trainer. They listen to the personal trainer. They're accountable to them. They say, oh, you know, last night I shouldn't have eaten that cake, but I'm confessing now. They do their homework outside of those classes. It begins to transform their lifestyle. It sounds like those four soils of Matthew 13. But here specifically, I'm talking to believers and to the true members of Christ's body, the true church. I pray that we would know Jesus who has appeared as our personal saviour, our personal saviour and trainer. He trains us. He is fully qualified teacher and trainer. He has the power and authority to give you all that you need that pertains to life and godliness. Jesus in his humanity learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5, 8. And thus he can teach us to be obedient to his word. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, we read in Hebrews 4, 16. And provide a world-timed grace. He can wean us from this world that's raging with sinful passions. Because in him there is no sin. And Jesus grants grace to us. Why? Because he is full of grace. The law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See our sin and guilt and the consequence of sin were nailed to the cross. As Jesus hung there on that cross. Selfless substitute. The author of life. The God man. On him was placed our filth, our ungodliness, our worldly passions. He became sin for us and died a sinner's death. As we close, Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, training in grace leads to a renouncement of godlessness and a life of self-denial following Jesus? Are you swimming in the murkiness of the well today? Are you swimming in the murkiness of your sins? Repent and turn to the Lord. Turn to Jesus. Only he can help you. All this that is in this present age as and cannot save you cannot satisfy you, can only lead to eternal condemnation. No more your old self. You have been made a new creation in Christ. Be that new person in Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people.
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Amen.